Press, I can't tell you how excited I have been to be able to uh, pick up right where we left off last week in a mini two-part series uh, entitled Made Clean in the book of Acts, chapter 10, verse 23. This morning we'll be reading from Acts 10, 23 through 48. But last time we saw Peter in the first half of Acts, we saw that he was gearing up for his conversation with Cornelius. Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, a man of high esteem and power, Earlier in Acts 9, Peter had been ushered all around Israel, uh, healing people and providing miracles here and there through the Spirit's power, throughout Lydda and Joppa and Jerusalem alike. But now he was being summoned to Caesarea by God's own voice. Not just the tugging of other people, but by God. That's what makes this all exciting. But furthermore, all the while as he was making his way, these words just kept marinating within his mind as he journeyed to Caesarea. What God has made clean, do not call common. So let's go ahead and pick back up where we left off last week in Acts chapter 10, verse 23. And we'll start halfway through this verse. Acts 10, 23. This is the word of God given to us in love, forever faithful and true. God's word says this. Then the next day, he, meaning Peter, rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. As, as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen 
by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain with them for some days. This is God's word. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us your word that points us to Christ. We thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit as believers who indwells us and who uh, uses this time to draw our affections unto the glories of our matchless King. So would you use this time to just accentuate Christ above all else? May I, as the messenger, get out of the way, and may you, King Jesus, be front and center in this place. And we ask all this in your holy name. Amen. Well, friends, today I believe that the Lord wants to challenge us in one key area of life, and that is this, that we must never be stingy with the gospel. Again, we must never be stingy with the gospel. We cannot harbor it for ourselves, for it alone is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe, both to the Jew first, but also the Greek. Peter learned this in verses 30, uh, 23, rather, through 33. And the church, by and large, learned this same truth in verses 34 through 48, subsequently. Let's go ahead and, for starters, though, turn back, if you will, to verse 24, as we see what the Lord was doing through Peter's life here. Here we see Peter and the others in his company, all the Jews with him and the folks who were sent from Cornelius, coming back to the place of Caesarea, where Cornelius lived. And yet in the blink of an eye, God's message to Peter would be unavoidably clear. That message that had been, again, marinating in his mind all the while, that the Gentiles were, in fact, not commoners. They were trophies of God's grace. Do you, see, do you see yourself as a trophy of God's grace as well, friends? Now, for four days in our context, Cornelius had been anticipating Peter's arrival. Verse 25 says that he had gathered all of his closest friends and even his family, his relatives, even you know, the in-laws alike as well, to hear this spoken word over them. Now, if God had spoken to you like Cornelius, wouldn't you also want to gather all of your closest friends and family, those that you love the most in the entire world, to hear what God would say to you? That's exactly what Cornelius did. And so as Peter strolled up, the contrast between these two men could not have been more stark. Cornelius, who was kind of the Caesarea Times person of the year, so to speak, well-known and well-loved by everybody around him, even all the Jews in that area, 
Peter, perhaps the primary apostle in the church at that time. This is the same Peter that had been imprisoned for Jesus' sake, and yet now he was being honored by coming to this man's house. But whether or not Cornelius at this time had been made privy to the fullness of the gospel message, which we understand here that he had not yet been, he knew regardless that Peter was a mouthpiece for God. God was about to speak through him to share something grand and marvelous. I can imagine that Cornelius might have been a little nervous as Peter walked up to the house and then entered into it. But Cornelius, nevertheless, was driven by his fear of God that we saw earlier in the chapter, but also his love for God. And we see that on display in our text. Friends, as we gather for worship every Sunday, do we also come from a place of reverence or fear of God, but also love for God and love for God's people as well? Is that our heart's desire as we gather for worship every Sunday? let alone as we gather in different ways throughout the week and enjoy each other's company. But on Sunday mornings, do we come with a hunger for the word of Christ? Are we eager to hear from God through his word spoken to us? To see our need for the Savior placed right in front of us, to learn more deeply what it means to, to cling to Christ with all that we are, and to learn more deeply what it means to be made clean through the washing of his blood over us, the blood that he poured out for us upon the cross. And furthermore, to be comforted by his love, love as such that a father has for a child. My earnest prayer uh, this morning for you all and every day as much as it comes to my mind whenever I think of you all is that we ourselves would be a church that would also approach our worship of God such a vibrant heart of worship as well. For how else but a heart made humble before God's throne can we see the king in all of his beauty as we just sang? But friends, even in our worship, we must always keep watch over what we are worshiping exactly. See, we must always desire to align our thinking with that of God's, to avoid improper worship because it's so easy to either add or to detract from worship that God has directed us to do. And I bring this up because we see both Peter and Cornelius fall short of this. They end up worshiping improperly, even in our context here. They were in need of worship correction, if you will. See, in verse 25, when Cornelius met up with Peter, it says that he fell down at his feet, he met him, and did what? He worshipped him. <laughs> right there in that moment, he ended up idolizing his guest, who was merely a mouthpiece for God. Just another steward of God's mysteries. And Cornelius ended up elevating Peter to this high pedestal as divine, almost. And in so doing, he broke the second commandment as he worshipped Peter incorrectly as, as opposed to God. But notice what Peter did immediately. He corrected him. He said, stand up. I too am a man. Essentially, don't worship me. Worship God. Now, have you found yourself like Cornelius? I know I have. 
becoming overly infatuated with one of God's many good gifts in your own life, as opposed to the treasure of God himself. Perhaps recently a pay raise or some kind of bonus has made you to feel like your ego's been stroked a little bit and you've fostered a sense of pride within your soul. Perhaps a new position that you now have before others has inculcated a form of pride in your own heart that you wish wasn't there and you ended up esteeming other people as being lesser than yourself. Or perhaps on the flip side, perhaps you're in a season of life where you feel like you've lost your grip on life and right now you're just grasping for anything that would bring a sense of normalcy back. But whatever the case might be, there's a question for us. What have we misappropriated in our worship? Are we worshiping God or are we worshiping self? And how did this happen? Well, the answer is quite simple. It's this, it's that we have taken our eyes off of Christ the King and all of his beauty and put it upon lesser things. And so we need to be quick to bring whatever is stealing our attention and our love, whatever we're worshiping, to our minds so quickly. To single it out in our minds and to isolate it and to quickly repent of this. Or to have a change of mind, in other words, about these things. Plead with the Spirit to revive your first love for Jesus. But as you do, also rest assured in the covenantal promise, the gospel truth that is nestled right within the second commandment that we break every day as well. This gospel truth that God is indeed just, yes, but as the second commandment says, he is also abundant in showing mercy toward thousands toward those who love him and who keep his commandments. So rest in that. Friends, there is mercy in Christ indeed for idol worshipers like us. And his redeeming grace doesn't then just cover our sins and cover it up, but it takes it away. It makes us clean. It washes us. It purifies us. See, the gospel is not just for lawbreakers, those who take the law and fail to meet it. It's for those who also add to the law. And such was the case with Peter here in Acts chapter 10. He recognized it as such. See, when he arrived at Cornelius' house, he became immediately convicted as soon as he walked into the house that he had exalted his own Jewish customs over the law of God. How so? Well, let's go ahead and read again in verse 28 what he says. See, he says this, you yourself know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. See, here is a genuine confession of sin. He had believed for a long time, maybe his entire life, a culturally sanctioned lie, a lie that wasn't based in God's law, but that took God's law and twisted it. See, did God's law truly condemn visiting with or associating with Gentiles? No. And thankfully not, because I think all of us here in this room are Gentiles and not Jewish by birth. <laughs> but this was rather a Jewish custom of the day. See, Peter had, in essence, broken the second commandment in a different way. 
by adding to the law of God. But by God's grace, his heart was being melted in this moment. And he learned to correct his thinking in light of the gospel. So, as a brief side note, what did God's law actually say? And what does it say about Jew-Gentile relations? Of course, there are many passages all throughout the Old Testament. And so, as a heads up, I've given you a little cheat sheet in front of you on your bulletins. In case you want to look over them when you get home. So as not to be exhaustive in explaining all this. But we see, amazingly so, all throughout the Old Testament, how God speaks favorably of the Gentiles, but especially their need for mercy in the coming Redeemer as well. We see passages like Isaiah 49.6, Isaiah 56, 3-7, and Zechariah 8.23, as well as even way back in the writings of Moses from the beginning in Leviticus 19.10 and also Deuteronomy 23, verse 15. And this list is hardly exhaustive. And so again, I would encourage you to take that home with you, the bulletin, and maybe look over some of those passages later tonight. But looking back at Peter in the meantime, notice what he does here. See, in light of God's surefire grace and forgiveness, he confesses his sin publicly, not only to Cornelius, but to the whole family and friends who were gathered right there. This, I believe, is exemplary spiritual leadership. This willingness for him to risk his reputation and even ask for forgiveness. Now, to paraphrase what Peter was saying, he basically was saying this, look, it's widely known that we Jews don't associate with you Gentiles. In fact, we don't really don't like you all that much. <laughs> but God has convinced me otherwise. I need to change my mind about this, but even my own heart in regard to these things. Because this mindset and this heart attitude are neither biblical nor God-honoring. For if I disavow myself of you, the least of, me, the least of these, my brothers and sisters, I'm essentially disavowing God. See, we as Christians, for those of you who are believers, we, we often drift into two distinct kind of errors. One error is for us to become like the world, to embrace everything about it and end up bowing our knees to shifting cultural norms. We see that even in our own town of Culpeper and beyond. We know we experience it. But the other extreme is to become tribal and insular in how we do the Christian life. Both of them are extremes, granted. But we must keep careful watch to avoid drifting into either extreme. And the scripture speaks to both of these. For just as we are not to walk in the counsel of the wicked, as Psalm 1 says, we are also, in the positive sense, meant to be a blessing and to seek the welfare of the cities into which God has placed us, as Jeremiah 29, verse 7 says. And those principles are still for us today. So how are we then to be a holy people, set apart, sanctioned for God, while also being a blessing to this world? How can we be in the world but not of it. Well, I think Christ's own words to us in the Gospel of John, John 17, verse 17, speak loudly over this situation. His high priestly prayer over us, these words of Jesus, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And, and catch this, this is 
gospel truth right here. For their sake, I consecrate myself. That they also may be sanctified in the truth. In other words, we must lean upon Jesus, who is the truth. Trust in his righteousness. Lean upon his righteousness. Especially in the moments where we find ourselves caught in sin. Lean upon the righteousness of Christ. See, in other words, we are not to be simply steeped in learning or to be steeped also in the love of God. Because true discipleship is imitating God's holy love. Humility in light of the cross, yes, but also righteousness in the sight of God by faith in Jesus Christ. For there is no other way. And so the glory of Peter and Cornelius' actions here again in the text is that they displayed God-honoring brotherly love, if you will, toward each other, even in spite of their own shortcomings. How might we then also seek to be a people who honor others out of a love and a fear for God? I venture to say we can do that by actively lifting up the heads of those who are downcast amongst us, those who feel like they're at their wit's end, those who are poor and desolate, those who've been tossed aside, who feel like orphans and widows, as we read earlier in Psalm 68. Can we be people who come by their side and display the love of Christ to them? Arguably, what's amazing about this text is that it was confession of sin that led way to restoration. See, Peter's confession in verse 28 led to Cornelius's readiness to then hear the gospel fully presented in verses 34 through 48. So let's go ahead and turn our attention now to that section, the second point for the morning, how the church learned the power of God. The gospel was indeed for the Jews, not the Gentiles, or for the Jews and the Gentiles alike. <laughs> but here in the moment, the church would learn that. They would learn of God's saving power to the uttermost. Let's look back at verse 34. It says this, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. But notice now what he does next. See, here, Peter then describes this word that was sent out to Israel in verse 36. The word that God sent to Israel is here, to get a little into the linguistics for a moment, in apposition with what happens next showing how the two are connected. The word sent to Israel, along with the preaching of the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And while that sounds wordy, it's pretty simple. The two things are equal. They're connected. See, in other words, the message that God sent into the world in the fullness of time is Christ who took on human flesh. Jesus Christ even more simply put, is the message of God. And so in Jesus alone, then, there is peace for the troubled soul. There's peace for you. In Jesus alone is forgiveness of sins. That forgiveness is for you. And in Jesus alone, all the revelation about God in Scripture is fulfilled. Everything that is true about Jesus, as you are in union with him, is now applied to you 
as a child of God. He is Lord over all, Jew and Gentile without distinction. That was the message that God gave Peter. Friends, this is the same message as well of peace with God. And, and this same message is what we too receive uh, when we receive the whole Christ, all of his person and his work, and revel in that. And we must receive the whole Christ. For what but his life in our place as the true and the better Israel could ever speak peace into our souls? What but his doing and doing good and, and all this business of healing all of us as bruised reeds could ever address the brokenness of our own lives? What but his undoing of the works of the devil, as Peter also explained, could ever assure us of the life to come where Satan, sin, and death will be destroyed and put away with once for all? And finally, what but his active obedience and sacrificial death upon the cross could secure for us a redemption for us people that never ends in its effect? See, as Peter was explaining these same mysteries of the gospel, all of those in that room in the house of Cornelius, I'm sure we're just amening these gospel truths within their hearts. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And something marvelous happened right here in the text, right before Peter's eyes. See, just as the early church had received the Holy Spirit and had spoken in tongues at that moment in Pen at Pentecost, now the Spirit was pouring himself out upon these Gentile believers as well. They were visibly speaking, brought into the church. And so they couldn't help but then extol the God of heaven. And all the while, the six Jews who had gone with Peter on his little trip were just amazed. Wow, how could this actually happen? The Gentiles also? God wants to save them too? What? <laughs> and so in this moment, they realized if God the Holy Spirit didn't keep back himself, Never mind God's redemption through Christ from them. Who are we then as Jews to refrain from pouring out the waters of baptism over them as well and seeing them as brothers and sisters in Christ? This sign of baptism, the, the covenantal sign of God's promise of life to us who believe in our children as well. See, here in this moment, they realized that even these Gentiles had also been made clean, washed clean by faith in Christ's name. These Gentiles had been born ready for this day, this day when they would see the glories of Christ revealed. Yes, they had already seen him in advance through the Old Testament. They had seen him in the promises and the types and the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. But now these Gentile believers saw their Redeemer Jesus, Savior. Over the next few days, Peter continued to explain more and more of the mysteries of the gospel to those Gentile believers. He didn't just check off the evangelism box, so to speak, and move on to the next town. Rather, he ended up staying with them and, get this, not only visiting with them, but associating with them for several days as brothers and sisters. I'm sure he was reminded of Jesus' words in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, which all of us probably know, even by heart. 
But when Christ said to Peter and the other apostles, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, he meant it. And he probably had, being Lord of all, I know he had, <laughs> these same Gentile believers in mind. Friends, this is how the church grows. So I want to bring up a point of application for us, for us to chew on. See, we ourselves sow the seeds of the gospel message, yes. And we do that in obedience. In our day-to-day -day interactions, here as we speak about it with one another. But God is the one who alone does and can provide the growth. As Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders, you know, those who build it, labor in vain. And unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And so we realize the pressure is off in terms of us because we can't save anybody. <laughs> but we must be obedient and never stingy in sharing this gospel message with others. See, beyond Peter's obedience and his prayerfulness even here, even his confession of sin, we see in here, we see here in Acts 10 that it was the Lord who got all the glory for what he did. For he is the one who divinely chooses, calls, and justifies. And thank the Lord that he shows no partiality. As Romans 10 verse 12 says, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And so church, this is my challenge to you. If the word of the gospel that is near us even now as we're thinking about it and meditating upon it in our minds, if it is here and near to us, who are we to refrain from speaking about it? Who are we to refrain from letting it just advance within our own hearts and within our own church and within our own town? I think Paul said it well in Romans 10 verse 14, how? How can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And so from the bottom of my heart, for the life of our town, let alone the life of our church, we must see ourselves as harbingers of this gospel truth, the gospel of Jesus. Yeah, we probably feel our inadequacies when we even hear that. We know that we're simply just jars of clay. And yet we hold that precious truth of the gospel within us. Friends, if we know that there is no other hope for the world, then we know that there is no other hope for this town of Culpeper and beyond. And if there is no other hope but the gospel for the church abroad in its life, in its peace, in its purity, then there is no other hope for our church here at Christ's Covenant saved to be meditating deeply upon the gospel and regularly. God's praise must essentially be forever upon our lips and swell up from within our hearts. So, friends, what are you doing personally to cultivate a love for the gospel in your own heart daily? Do you meet up with friends and family and talk about these things? Do you bring up these things in prayer as you think of our nation and our world and our town? Do you think of those that you know who are lost and pray for them regularly? 
how are you going to keep the love of Christ fresh within your heart? Well, as we conclude, if you've tasted and seen the goodness of God, my challenge for you as well as myself is to be all the more mindful of the power of the gospel. See, if we know God's love, who are we then to refrain from giving it to those that we interact with, let alone each other? Not just our neighbors, but our church. I'm convinced that when God's love becomes the heartbeat of our church here at Christ's Covenant, when our service toward one another is known deeply, and our speech is honoring and brimming with love and respect, as Frank was just sharing with us from Ephesians 5, we will become that community that others want to be a part of. If you're not yet a believer in Christ, if you haven't yet tasted and see that God is good, this time is for you to hear the gospel and to look more closely at the scripture and be convicted in your own hearts. This message is for you to hear. And my prayer is that you would hear and see Christ and that you would run to him who gave his life for us. With that in mind, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time of reveling in your word. We pray that it would speak deeply to our souls and continue to do its work as you have always promised it would. And so we pray this in Jesus' name.